0: Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 186. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Abba, bless your name and thank you for the uh, study Avino uh, Malkin, our Father, our King. You, Lord, our the only wise counselor. You are our God and our Savior. You are the one who is bringing, who is bringing these um, studies to their purpose. You are causing us to um, rally around your word, and to pour into it, and to equip ourselves, and to fellowship with the Spirit, and to strengthen our minds as a resolve against all of the the wicked um, schemes of the adversary and the devices of evil men, um, the, the the strange philosophies and and um, theologies that are floating around the world today. Um, you know, you just go go on the internet, and you can realize that there's just all manner of um, perspectives out there that don't line up with the worldview that your word presents. So, help us to be um, careful to have our mind, as we're going to read in Romans later on in the study night, our mind controlled by the Spirit. Help us to have a mind that's been um, renewed by the Spirit of God and is setting itself on the things of God and not on the things of the world. So, help us during this endeavor, Lord. and um, continue to strengthen us and raise us up, and we'll be careful to give you the praise and glory of the Yeshua. Amen. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week. My name is Aralban Lyman Hanavi, and we start the hour-long study with the first 30-minute segment on Matthew 9, 14-17, Judaism v. Christianity. That's a short title, or is are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another? That's the long study. the long title there and so um we've been working through the passage you can see it that you can see on your screen right now um it's a it's a passage that's taken out of the book of matthew which does show up in mark and in luke but it's missing in john let me just read the passage for you then we'll jump right into where we left off last week um the esv has a heading that says a question about fasting and that lends to the assumption that all of the verses are actually about fasting but That may or may not be true. Um, As we look at the three kind of anecdotal examples that are given by Yeshua, we find that um, some of them are about fasting and others are maybe not necessarily. We'll see what what the Christian commentaries say. We've been talking about that as well. Starting in verse 14, Yeshua says, or well, Matthew writes, Then the disciples of John came to him, and of course they came to Yeshua, that's the him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And then verse 15, Jesus said "Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. And then verse um, 16, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and, the worse, and a worse tear is made. And then verse 17, Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wine skins, and so both are preserved. That's the um, parable, or it's not called a parable here in Matthew. It is called a parable in uh, in Luke or Mark, one of the other two. I can't remember which one. But the point is that we've been looking at this um, section through the lens of common Christian. Uh, interpretation as kind of has been carried along down through the last, you know, 1900 or 2000 years or so. And what we have ascertained is that essentially, or what we've learned, is um, that the essential um, default interpretation or most popular interpretation in Christian circles today, when you ask them, what does Yeshua, what's Yeshua trying to get at when he's talking about an old garment and a new cl- uh, patch, and a uh, uh, new wine and old wine skins, and then the part about the wedding guest and the and the morning and things like that—that that isn't as as strongly pushed into the view that I'm about to describe here. But the other two pieces, right? There's three elements. The other two elements, the last two, the B and the C of A, B, and C, um, those are really, really used to emphasize this central point. And the point is. That's emphasized. If you read Christian commentaries or listen to your average pastor, go online, do a Google search for this particular uh, uh, sermon um, or this particular um, uh, reference, scriptural reference passage. Do a Google search, and you can read up on it, or you can watch, you know, YouTube videos and things like that. The general gist: This is what I came to, and I did the study a few years back, and I'm now revisiting it for this YouTube uh, video series. The general gist is this. God is working a new thing through His Son, Yeshua. God is working a new thing. <laughs> Those of you who are old fans, by the way, of DC Talk, right? You guys remember that old Christian rap group, DC Talk? Um, one of their first um, CDs that came out was um, called New Thang, T-H-A-N-G, New Thang, right? And uh, the, the, I think one of the very first songs was New, new Thang, God is doing a new thing, Right? And um, sorry, I just reminded that since DC Talk were my uh, roommates in college at at Liberty University, so um, God is doing a new thing through through Yeshua, through His Son, and this new thing, (laughs) right? This new thing, this new thing is um, incompatible with the existing worldview of Judaism or the existing thing uh, religious system of the day, and this new thing is described by most Christian commentaries as the New Covenant or the New people of God or the new laws of God. So we have this kind of dichotomy that's set up, a comparison um, between two uh, groups, uh, you know, us and them. And um, essentially what we're talking about is what amounts to replacement theology or supersessionism, where one group is superseding the other or one group is replacing the other. So in the terms of people groups, it's Israel is being displaced by the church, by the Gentile Christians. So Israel gets replaced. Israel's out. The church is in if you pour it through the um topic of the torah of the law of god the law of moses then the law of moses is out and the law of christ is in that's the replacement there if you're talking about um covenants or testaments like you read in your bible if you open up your bible you know you've got two main sections old and new testament with that little separator page in the middle that you really should just rip out but in terms of christian theology old testament is out or downplayed or being replaced or outmoded or it's run its course, right? Um, And the New Testament era is here or something like that. You ask Christians, are you Old Testament Christian or New Testament Christian? They'll just tell you right away, I'm a New Testament Christian. Uh, In terms of covenant, we think of Old Covenant is, is out and New Covenant is in. So, we could use any number of descriptors, nouns, and things like that to describe this phenomenon, but it all amounts to about the same thing. Old is out, the old is out, the new is in. And when we talk about again people groups of God, if you're on the receiving end of the going out process of the of the older of the outdated one that, you know, the Jewish people, it doesn't really sit very well with you. So that's part that kind of drives part of where I'm going with my commentary, because I'm Jewish and I'm a believer in Jesus and I have a high respect for the Torah and the people of God and the law of God and the Old Testament and things like that. And yet when I hear all of these sermons about, well, all of that's out, all that's being replaced. I begin to scratch my head and say, "Okay, that sounds good. Sounds theologically, maybe even factual or, 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 or you know, um, plausible. But what does the Bible say? And what does this parable really say?" So we're looking at this parable through that um, perspective. I mentioned, and I keep mentioning this, that if you read the parable at face value, the the, the three parts to it, right, A, B, and C. The A part is a little more difficult to figure out. You know, the wedding guests and the bridegroom. I can kind of figure out that this is Yeshua putting himself in in the place of um, of the bridegroom. And the bride, of course, is the people of Israel or the people of God. And now that this wedding is the focal point and Yeshua is here with them, why would you want to mourn? Why would you want to fast? Instead, you should be rejoicing, right? And so I can understand that part. That doesn't still sound like there's any replacement going on. Right? We could have that setting in a Jewish setting. Jesus is the long-awaited bridegroom of the bride Israel, and now that the bridegroom has arrived per the prophecies of God to Israel in the Old Testament, now Israel, you can rejoice. You don't need to mourn, you don't need to fast, you need to rejoice because your bridegroom is right in front of you. Okay? I can get that. We can we can we can um track with that and still keep it as a kind of a um a Jewish topic. But when we get to B and C, um, B being the piece of unshrunk cloth with the old garment, and C being the new wine and the old wineskins. That's where the Christian commentaries really start to dig in with this idea that Yeshua's message was too radical for the first century to latch onto. And Judaism had become so corrupt at this point in time and bankrupt that it needed to be reformed and i'm sorry it needed to be replaced not reformed but replaced and so the old is out the new is in is israel and judaism and that way of life that 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 thought process of being Torah observant and keeping the laws and all that stuff in the relationship to god that's the old way that it was good at its time, but it's dated now. It's out, and the new way is to, to to approach God through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit and through the New Testament experience, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, it's a convenient way of saying that we're no longer under the law; we're under grace. Um, uh, we don't have to keep the law anymore because Jesus fulfilled it. Um, those types of things. Uh, you know, the law has been done away with; it was nailed to the cross. Um, uh, you know, the one new man is what the experience. And I'm not trying to minimize the um. I'm not trying to actually mock her or anything like that. I'm not trying to trivialize the New Testament experience or anything like that. So, don't, under, don't misunderstand my tone. However, um, what we're learning is that, really, that's not the best way to interpret the passage. So, uh, again, I, I pointed out, and I'll jump into the, uh, my commentary. I pointed out that in verse 16, with the, 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 the cloth that's being patched, if you read just at face value you actually want to keep the patch. I'm sorry, you actually want to keep the cloth. Otherwise, why would you even go out and buy a patch? Right? That doesn't even make sense. I think if you read the other uh, two uh, um, accounts in Mark and Luke, there's a little more detail there, and it talks about this. And we'll see this in David Stern's commentary, which we're going to read tonight. Um, The idea is that uh, you want to keep the garment, and that's why you're buying a patch in the first place. And so, um it's not a question of should we replace the garment that that isn't even brought into the discussion the idea is that we want to keep the garment we simply want to patch it up but there's a procedure that we have to follow before we patch it and we have to condition the patch that's the only thing right the cloth is already worn out but the 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 patch itself is brand new it hasn't been washed it hasn't been shrunk the idea is that obviously you need to shrink the patch first and then you can sew it to the piece of cloth which means something has to happen to the patch, all right? I'm going to get to the meaning of that in a second. And then with the uh the the C element of the story the verse 17, same uh thing is going on. If you have two elements, you have the I'm sorry, you have two parts of it. You have the old wine and you have the new wine. I'm sorry, you have the new wine and you have the old wineskins. If you just introduce um, one to the other right away without doing any any prep, then you're going to end up with a disaster, right? Yeshua says the skins will burst and the wine will be spilled, skins are destroyed. But notice the very last clause says, but new wines put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. And we already looked at the Greek that the word for new it preceding the word wine and the word for fresh preceding the word wineskins is not the same Greek word. And so the implication here, and David's turn going to bring this up again as well. So I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. but I'm giving you kind of a, an overview in case you don't make it to the end of the, the rest of the commentary. Basically, we're going to see that Yeshua wants both to be preserved. Both are preserved if you do it the proper way. So in the analogy of Yeshua is the new patch, and Yeshua or the untrunk uh, patch, the untrunk um, uh, the, the piece of untrunk cloth. And Yeshua is also the new wine. In both of those analogies, in Christian commentaries, they say that the old wine is Judaism. I'm sorry, the, uh, the wineskin, the old wineskin is Judaism. Likewise, the, um, the garment, the old garment is also Judaism. And in their analogy, Jesus is simply incompatible with them, so you can't repair them. They have to be replaced with brand new clothes or brand new um, wine or something like that but um or new brand new wineskins um but that's not what the 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 passage says it doesn't say that the 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 cloth is replaced or that the wineskins are replaced if you read it the the idea is that the cloth should be kept otherwise why are you patching it and you want to preserve both the wine and the wineskins. It even says that both but the new wine is put into fresh wineskins. and So both are preserved. So using the analogy one for one, if we're talking about Yeshua's teachings ver and the New Testament experience as relates as it relates right um you know, um vis-a-vis to um the Jewish worldview of that day, well then Yeshua's trying to preserve Judaism. He's trying to preserve the law of God. He's trying to preserve the Torah way of life. It's just that he knows that there's something that has to take place first. So, let's talk about what has to take place before Yeshua's teachings can take hold uh, in the heart and the mind of the people who are listening to him, watching him, witnessing him, doing all those works. We're on a section in my commentary called The Old Man, The New Man, and Messianic Judaism. And so, we're going to read... David Stern, who is a Messianic Jewish author, he wrote the Jewish New Testament commentary along with the Jewish New Testament and now the Complete Jewish Bible. And so, let's drop down into his comments and read these. These are taken from his Jewish New Testament commentary that I own. All right, here's what it has to say. This verse and the next speak to the issue of whether faith in Yeshua the Messiah can be combined with Judaism. And he's commenting specifically on he says this verse and the next. Let me drop down and see. I think he's talking specifically in verse uh, uh, 16 and 17. Just, he's doing what I'm doing. He's realizing that it's of those three elements, A, B, and C, right? The A being the wedding analogy, the B being the uh, cloth analogy and the C being the wine skin analogy of those three the last two are the two that are more pointed and more relevant to kind of pushing um the perspective that yeshua was trying to um reveal to his listeners and so um uh, that's why david stern says the next this verse and the next he's me he's talking about verse um 16 and 17. Um, these speak to whether faith in Yeshua Messiah can be combined with Judaism. Again, if you ask your average garden variety Christian commenter commentator, this question: Can is Yeshua can faith in Yeshua Messiah be combined with Judaism? I mean, in our day and age, you know, with the cancel culture and everyone trying to be very, very careful about the words that they say, right? Because we're living in a woke generation. A lot of people might say, "Well, maybe it could," but the older commentaries, the farther back you go. It was, you know, before the this woke um, culture and cancel culture that everyone's kind of afraid to say anything, right? You know, the Me Too movement. No one wants to say anything about someone else, or else they'll get, you know, they'll get blacklisted. But before that, you know, just just a few years ago, it was no problem. And even going years back, it was no problem for Christian commentaries basically just come right out and say, you know, Judaism is not compatible with Christianity. Um, Jewish worldview is essentially um, not able to hold the truths uh, of messianic uh, uh, lifestyle so um david stern says here the old coat is judaism right and the unshrunk cloth is messianic faith right christianity which has not been adapted or shrunk to the framework of judaism as currently practiced right so he's setting up his um, understanding which i think is actually accurate and we're going to read his version we'll study his first and then we'll drop down into tim haig's comments as well but we'll start with uh, david stern you have to remember david stern is a messianic jew meaning he's a christian who believes that judaism is still relevant for jews at least he also believes that judaism is relevant for christians but first and foremost it's relevant to jews who want to retain a Jewish lifestyle, but also practice a faith in Jesus? This is something that's very confusing to many unbelieving Jews and confusing to many believing Gentile Christians. The, the idea of uh, uh, professing a faith in Jesus and retaining your um, loyalty to Torah and obedience to Torah, right? It's it's a strange lifestyle for um, both of those groups. Alright, so David's turn continues. So, he's ta- he says shrinking here in the verse, in the passage, is simply an aspect of Yeshua's patch metaphor, right? Um, shrinking. He uses this kind of in a, a metaphoric way. It does not imply that Messianic faith must be diminished in order to fit into Judaism. So, this is a very important point to make right away. Yeshua does say that you can't put a new patch onto an old piece of cloth without first shrinking the patch. And in the analogy, it's clear that Yeshua is referring or alluding to His own theology and His own worldview and His own perspective as that new patch. And the cloth is in fact, and, and I agree with this part. The, the the elements in the um story, the analogy, as they have been uh, broken down by Christian commentaries. I agree that the cloth is the Jewish worldview, or the or the Jewish people, uh, or the Jew of the, the world of the first century. Um, and or the mindset and the um uh in the new cloth it's in fact yeshua's messianic teaching but yeshua uses the verb um that translates into english as unshrunk right or shrinking um so we don't need to take that in its literal sense that he's trying to say that my teaching needs to somehow shrink so it can fit into judaism i if i was the messiah talking Remember, Yeshua is the one who chose the words. If he wanted to use a different metaphor, he could have used he could have used any number of metaphors, but he chose the, the shrinking. So, David Stern is just trying to alert us to the fact that don't take the metaphor too hyper literally. Typically, with metaphors and um, similes and and um, uh, what do we say, parables and things like that, and all these anecdotal stories, there's usually one primary main thought that's being conveyed without us uh, needing to nitpick. The um, parable to try and see where all of the inconsistencies lies. Don't don't do that. all right? I know some Christian Bible students who do that. Say, but 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 what about if the parable is this? They kind of take could take it hyper literally, and then you lose the force of a parable. If you want to understand a parable, look for the central theme of the parable, and let the other stuff be peripheral. Right? It's you know, it's no need to to pick all the little parts uh, pieces apart. Let's continue. David Stern says combining unadapted Messianic faith with traditional Judaism doesn't work. Unadapted Messianic faith. What happens is the patch tears away from the coat, and he explains what he means by that. That is, faith in Yeshua apart from Judaism, and later on in the case of Gentiles, faith in Yeshua apart from foundational truths about God that are taught in the Tanakh, this type of faith is useless and worthless and i agree with that right faith in yeshua apart from the foundational truths about god taught in the tanakh is useless and worthless and this we can see is the unfortunate path that a lot of gentile christians embarked upon from the early, early days of the um, uh, formulation of the church as a as a group of Jews and Gentiles, there was this sociological struggle very early on in the church uh, between who is really the 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 um um uh the focal point of God's plans in the earth now that Christ has come and has died and has ascended, sits at the right hand of the Father, and He's already sent the Holy Spirit. So we're talking about the Book of Acts. Many Christian commentaries opt for reading the book of Acts as kind of what we might call a transition period. A transition period of, of from what to what? And most will tell you it's a transition from the old to the new. And so we're seeing like this power shift and a kind of a focal shift of, of God focusing on the people of Israel first, and now he's transitioning his focal and a, a focus and attention to the Gentile Christian church. And so this, like I said, this is why it is described as the the kind of the default position that the Gentile Christian church kind of took off with, ran with. And so for the last 1900 years or more, then largely uh, life in Christ, uh, life in God, uh, fellowship of the Spirit, all this has really been a largely Gentile Christian experience. Therefore, Jewish people seeking to identify with Christianity and the church and Yeshua and God and the Holy Spirit and all that had a hard time fitting in because there was no cultural tie-in anymore to Judaism. And um, uh, in some cases, in extreme cases, uh, Gentile Christians even forbade Jewish practices to be um, continued, contact with Jewish people, uh, visiting of Jewish synagogues. Um, uh, you know, resemblance to, uh, to what they labeled as Jewish commandments, right? Sabbath-keeping, kosher-keeping, things like that, festivals. And so, we're really talking about um, a break between two cultures and two theological worldviews separated from one another. Don't get me wrong, the the, the rabbinic Jews on the other side also had their, hey, we don't want to be a part of you either, you, you Christians. We don't want to identify with you. We don't believe in Jesus. We reject Him as Messiah, blah, 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 you know, Get away from us, and we'll stay away from us, and we'll stay away from you. So it was the, the animosity was on both sides. I'm not trying to point my fingers only at one group. To be sure, if we talk about first blood, right, like that old movie from Sylvester Stallone with Rambo, was it Rambo? Yeah, first blood. Um, the, the, the synagogue drew first blood, okay? They were the ones to lash out first. But we're not here to point fingers, all right? We're all guilty in one way or another, both Jew and Gentile. We all have our, 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 our baggage, our skeletons in the closet. The point I 'm trying to bring up is that David Stern's trying to say that uh, that Yeshua apart from the foundational truths taught about the God and the Tanakh is a very useless and worthless worldview and experience because that's not the way the New Testament was supposed to be read. If you read through the New Testament you'll realize that it's a document that was supposed to be um uh inclusive of Jew and Gentile and bringing this this fulfilled and completed aspect. And when we say fulfilled and complete, we're talking almost like a building metaphor, where the top floor completes the bottom, the floors below it. Right? The um, the foundational parts uh, hold up the floors above it. So there's a a working relationship between the the top parts of the building and the bottom parts of the building there's no animosity between the two there's no hey the top floor saying we don't need you anymore because we're 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 the you know we're all that and a, and a bag of chips we're we're the we're the crowning achievement of this building look how look how we shine right look at our spire look look at our our um our, our um uh penthouse you know look how shiny and bright and 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 you know desirable that we are we don't need you bottom floor basement uh, foundation you know sitting in the cement in the dirt and all that stuff we don't need you No, of course that's silly if a building could talk it wouldn't it wouldn't say that and the bottom floors likely shouldn't say we don't recognize top floor we don't know who you are what who are you we 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 disagree with with your um you know completed status and blah 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 So, so this would be a silly argument going on if a building was was arguing with itself well Think about it from the point of view of the New Testament like as if the New Testament's looking back at the Old Testament saying I don't need you anymore, right? Sorry, you're out, I'm in, right? And the Old Testament saying to the New Testament, well, I disagree with your theology about Jesus, so I'm just going to break away from you, you know, you go your way and I'll go my way and let, just leave me alone and I'll leave you alone, right? <laughs> right, how silly all right so david stern um continues um not only that right talking about the uselessness worthlessness of this perspective not only that but it leaves a worse hole attempting to combine unadapted messianic faith with traditional judaism leaves judaism worse off than before all right so he's going to explain what he means by unadapted so don't uh get confused if you don't understand just yet don't worry he continues the implication is that one must shrink the new cloth Adapt Messianic faith to Judaism, for Yeshua does not imply that there is anything wrong with patching an old coat. That's the part I wanted to kind of let sink in for a split second, is as we're reading through these uh, verses, don't read so fast and be so quick to jump into the idea from your Christian commentaries that the old coat is actually needing to be replaced. Again, the implication is that if you have a coat and it's valuable enough to you to patch, then the assumption, or and, and we, can, we can simply say that this is the, the, the proper mindset, it's not even really just a um, loose assumption, is that you want to keep that coat. And that's why you buy a patch. Otherwise, you just go out and buy a brand new coat. Right? Or you go borrow one from your brother or sister. Right? You steal theirs. That's, that's usually how we do it if you have multiple siblings in the house. Right? Your coat's not fitting so well, you go steal one from your older brother. Right, His clothes fit you anyway. So, Yeshua implies that there's nothing wrong with patching the old coat. This is where we are beginning to see that the perspective that's offered by your your average uh, Christian commentary, and I keep focusing on, I, I keep highlighting the word Christian commentary because, hey, guess what? Not too many Jewish commentaries on the New Testament out there that are written from a rabbinic perspective. If they are out there, I don't know about them, right? The the, the the unsaved rabbis, the traditional Jewish people, the Orthodox Jews—they're not interested in reading the New Testament. They're not interested in commenting about the New Testament. So we can understand why I keep saying Christian perspective. It's not like the Christian perspective is all bad. I'm just trying to say that that's the default. That's really the main one that we have to work with where from here. So don't don't be don't misunderstand me. But in closing for this section, and we'll finish this uh, paragraph tonight, and then we'll call it quits. Yeshua in this part is not really trying to imply that Judaism needs to be replaced, or that the law of Moses needs to be replaced, or that the people of Israel need to be swapped out for the new people group. That's really the challenge that I'm trying to present. Uh, I kept using the, 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 the analogy of the baby in the bathwater. right? You guys know the analogy. You have a dirty baby. You, you draw a bath. You put the baby in the bath, and you wash them down. And then when you're done, you have a tub full of dirty water, dirty bath water. What do you do? Do you throw the baby out with the bathwater? That would be absurd, right? Instead, everyone knows that you keep the baby, but you toss out the bad, the, 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 the dirty bathwater. Well, the same thing is kind of going on with with this analogy. Judaism has its problems of, in Yeshua's day, and I'll close with this and read this final comment. Judaism certainly had its hold-ups, its hang-ups and headaches and hold-ups and heartaches and things like that. Um, but was it necessary to toss that we have to remember where did the jewish lifestyle originate where did it come from my premise is that the jewish lifestyle originated in god giving the lifestyle to moses at sinai and then moses writing out the rest of the torah as he journeyed with the people of israel before he died so the children of israel carried the words of moses that god dictated to him with them into the land of Israel when they established themselves as a people group, thus their constitution as a people was framed and influenced, and in many ways simply directly, um, uh, 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 how, how I would say, directly um, uh, ruled or described or are. Uh, determined by what God told them what to do and what not to do. So, that's why I say the Jewish lifestyle. Yes, they brought and added their own traditions, their own opinions, their own halakha, their own rulings, their own tr- group policies, things like that. Any group is going to do that. But by, by uh, what I'm really trying to get at is that the foundational part of it was, was given by God. And so, there's nothing wrong with it. Let me finish reading David Stern's commentary, this paragraph, so we can break this part off and then we'll pick this up next week. David Cern says the early Messianic Jews did adapt messianic faith to Judaism, meaning they retained their status as Jews, their their loyalty to Torah, their connection to the people group known as Israel. They simply took Jesus and realized that he's the fulfillment of what we've been waiting for. He's the fullness of it. Now we can actually do an about face and re-examine judaism and the people of israel in light of what messiah has already done for us and the presence of the holy spirit and we can begin to connect the dots where we previously didn't see he says these early messianic jews they actually did adapt messianic faith to judaism but the later gentile church did not let me back up there for a second the gentile church didn't adapt messianic faith instead um, David Stern says some forms of Gentile Christianity. Notice he says some. He's he not. It's not his indictment isn't against all, but some forms of Gentile Christianity became paganized precisely because the Tanakh was forgotten or underemphasized. Paganized. Um, there was a like I said a power shift. Um, you know a vacuum of, was created when when um one people group is thrust out of the picture and so something has to rush in to fill that vacuum as is typically the case when you're talking about a power shift and so um if you lose your connection to the knock and the 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 um the commandments of god you have to fill it with something else and um earlier on a lot of gentile christianity filled that void uh with um surrounding cultural um elements Pagan elements in some cases. um, And some of that was bad. Some of it was good. Um, You know, I'm not trying to say that all traditions are wrong. Not all cultural elements are wrong or unbiblical or things like that. The point I'm trying to say is that if you rip the um, commandments of God out of the picture, there weren't any New Testament um, documents yet to call a book, right? That would come a little bit later. Then you've got suddenly a, a void that needs to be filled by something. And so that's what David Stern's trying to get at. He concludes this section. We'll pick this up next week. He says, Messianic Jews are once again, speaking of today's Messianic Jews, they're once again trying to bring New Testament faith back to its Jewish roots. And we have this idea of returning to our Hebraic roots, uh, the Hebraic roots um, movement or the Hebrew roots movement. I know that term's got a lot of baggage to it as well. The um, Torah movements, or um, um, what, you know, whatever, returning things and pads, messianic Judaism, many different labels you can describe, but they're all trying to accomplish the same kind of goal. At least that's my perception of what they're trying to accomplish: is to retain our faith in Jesus as Jews, and I'm sorry, um, retain our identity as Jews and loyalty to Torah, but at the same time bring in our faith in Jesus and not allow that faith in Jesus to have to replace our faith in God and our loyalty to Torah. We'll talk a little bit more about this next week, but we'll stop right here in David Stern's commentary, and that'll do it for um, uh, Judaism v. Christianity, are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another? These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week. Uh, my name is Arlo Ben-Lyman Hanavi. I'm a member of the Harvest Congregation, a real live congregation in Thornton, Colorado. You can find us online at GraftedIn.com. We'd love to have you join us live in person at our synagogue services week after week, but if you're still just a little bit uncomfortable getting out and about, at least find us online and uh, follow our YouTube channel and watch the videos like you can see on my screen right now. You're also um, invited to head on over to tetzetorah.com. That's my own personal Torah teaching website. tetzetora com is the uh, URL address if you'd like to bookmark it in your browser. Um, you can see a cluster of links there to different studies that I've put together. This is not the exhaustive list, but it's just kind of the core list that I draw from. And so um, have a look around, and um, if you like what you're um, reading, um, be sure to investigate a little bit further because a lot of what I write turns into either a YouTube video or an iTunes podcast or something to that effect. Speaking of YouTube videos, find me on the YouTube platform at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Tatesy Ministries, all one word there, C for channel. And you'll notice right away that you'll see that I update my channel daily. I'm typically uploading a video like a short five minute video on the topic, uh, every day twice a day sometimes and uh, even twice on the weekends or something like that I try to keep fairly busy Um, make sure that you uh, browse around through all the um, uh, channels and videos and playlists that I do make available on my website and for those of you in post-production you can see that I've got a bunch of uh, um, suggestions dancing around the screen subscribe to my YouTube channel Uh, hit the bell for notifications leave me comments uh, or questions or corrections hit the thumbs up if you like what you're watching and make sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles. Some important details uh, that, if you'd like to join us for our live studies, is get access to Skype somehow on whatever device that you're using—smartphone or smartwatch or uh, desktop or laptop or iPad or um, you know Android device or whatever. Um, get access to Skype, and um, that's the platform that we use uh, week after week. In fact, if you click on the blue Skype link that you see on my screen right now, it'll launch Skype in your browser if you're using a desktop or laptop computer and uh, you don't have to do anything any, any other installing if that's what you'd like to do so we'd love to have you join us week after week uh, <laughs> via Skype but if not um, if you are on my website sometime at tatesatorah.com, take a moment to scroll down to the very, very bottom to that black section where you can see some Hebrew writing and carefully pray about partner, partnering with me during this difficult time that I'm still in. It's been quite a long um, famine is what I'm calling it. Um, of. Uh, of um, employment um, where I'm still um, just kind of relying on uh, God's grace and favor to keep me uh, afloat uh, and that's accomplished through your um, gifts and contributions and, and prayers and support and uh, um, just uh, monies that are being sent in via the Internet this is the mechanism right here click the little, little donate button um, that shows up on my site here or in the each video I put a little link To this same um, uh, PayPal feature link, as well as it shows up in my newsletters, to give people an opportunity to help support me. Um, I'm so absolutely thankful and grateful to be on the receiving end of your generosity and I pray that the Lord will continue to bless you out there. Those of you who are regular givers, just absolutely um, so grateful. I can't express my gratitude enough at how, um, how thankful I am and absolutely humbled uh, to be in a place where God's using you to bless me during this difficult time. So uh, please do continue to keep giving. Uh, those of you who are regular givers, those of you who just give me one-time gifts, that's fine as well, too. I mean, uh, God... Uh, creates the increase god knows the need god creates the increase um you guys are just on the on the uh, position of being used uh by god uh, to bless me so thank you thank you thank you as i always say be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others let's turn to exploring the shema discussions on the issues of trinity we're right in the middle of looking at these passages about the holy spirit we're revisiting these passages from part two earlier Remember, we had a table where it was Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now we've, only, we've trimmed down the table to just look at the Holy Spirit. And over the last few weeks, we've looked at how the Holy Spirit is called God in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit is um, Creator in the book of Job. The Holy Spirit resurrects in the book of Romans. Uh, the Holy Spirit dwells in the book of John. The Holy Spirit is everywhere in the book of Psalms and the holy spirit is all-knowing in first corinthians and we finally also looked at um the holy spirit sanctifies us as believers in the book of first peter and that's basically where we left off and then what i've been doing is i went back to the um romans 8 passage because um contextually uh, that passage is kind of the culmination of paul's um teachings on the trinity of god I've got this um, commentary that I found online, uh, written by a a Trinitarian Christian gentleman. It's a short essay, about 20 pages, but it reads almost like a miniature um, thesis or something like that. It's it's got some kind of technicalities in it, but I'm going to see if I can leave time in our Trinity study tonight to um, look or to read part of his commentary. But what I want to do first is I want to finish this little mini excursus that I've been embarking on, that I've uh, uh, been uh, uh, conducting for the last two weeks. And we'll finish this tonight. So we'll take three weeks. This is an excursus where we're reading through Romans 8 and we're mining it for all of its um, nuggets. We're just going verse by verse and looking at it. If you take all of Paul's letters where he talks about the Spirit and you compare how many times? Just sheer number and context and things like that. In Romans 8, it's the most concentrated. In fact, it shows up, I think the word spirit itself shows up like 22, 21, 22 times, something like that. And so, um, what we find if we just look at Romans as a snapshot, the first two chapters, I think, deal with God and his dealings with mankind. The next five chapters so two and five that's seven yeah deal with um the redemptive work of yeshua the son and um what he did for us on the cross and defeating death and and things like that and then we culminate with this one chapter in chapter eight with the holy spirit so you see how up to this point from romans one all the way to eight we can see the trinity perspective father son holy spirit and paul using it. he does that in galatians as well too in a very short and firm uh, form we'll look at that a different day. But let's turn to Romans eight. We left off last week in verse eleven. But I want to back up for context and just read starting in verse uh, chapter eight, starting in verse eight, and read eight, nine, ten, and then eleven. And that's where we basically left off. I don't spend too much time focusing on it, but I just want to back up to get the context. Let me zoom in to verse eight. Paul says in verse eight, uh, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. When he says in the flesh, by the way, he doesn't mean those who are human. Because sometimes in Paul, flesh, the Greek word sarx, if you transliterate it, it would be s-a-r-k-s or s-a-r-x. But sarx, um, this word doesn't always just mean human flesh. It can mean human flesh, right? as in humanity and, and the, the skin that surrounds our bones. But he's using it metaphorically here in a theological way. He says those who are in the flesh, he's talking about those who allow their, those who are Christians or unbelievers, but his context is believers is those who allow their sinful passions and desires to rule their thought processes and their decisions, right? So you can have unbelievers who do whatever they wanna do and they don't care what God's perspective is. And why do they do that? Why did we as believers do that prior to becoming Christians? We did it because that's the default position as an unbeliever. You're just gonna take care of yourself, you're gonna think of yourself, you're gonna be self-centered, right? That's the default position as an unbeliever, self-centeredness. But once you become a believer, you surrender that will to God, and you allow His will to dominate your life and to dictate your decisions and thought processes. And that's the point that Paul's trying to make. However, this process is not automatic. It requires discipline, it requires hard work, it requires allowing the, the Word of God to saturate your mind, it requires um, spending a copious amount of time meditating and reading and studying God's Word and focusing on Yeshua as your first love. It requires reliance upon the Holy Spirit and surrendering your will into God's hands. So, it is hard work. It's not automatic. The flesh is going to resist you, your stubborn flesh, your stubborn mindset. That's why Paul says those who are in the flesh. From the believer's perspective, you can still default into that old way of and patterns of thinking if you're not careful. In fact, that is what ends up happening to us as believers if we don't discipline ourselves to live according to the Spirit. So, don't live according to the flesh. This is what Ryrie's Bible used to call the carnal Christian, right? He's a believer, but he's not living like a believer. He's very little power in his life. He's living like he's... He's he's a believer, but he's still living like he's still in the world, like he's unsaved. That's what Paul's trying to say. Those who are in the flesh. Um, Verse 9, you, however, right, notice... The contrast. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. This is a positional statement. Forensically speaking, when God looks at us, He doesn't see us as sinners. He sees us as redeemed, as saints, because He's looking at us at like kind of like Wayne Watson, the old uh, Christian uh, uh, song uh, Christian singer, used to say. He's looking at us through rose-colored glasses. Um, And so, he's seeing us through the blood. When he looks at us, he sees the blood of his son Messiah applied to our very hearts. Kind of like the same imagery when the Passover, um, the death angel passed through the land of Egypt in the book of Exodus. If the death angel saw the blood on the door, then the death angel passed over that door has to buy, or you could say he stepped over the threshold and became a protector either way that the analogy is still the same the idea is that the blood is a protection mechanism same thing happens in the spirit when god looks at me he knows that i believe in jesus his son therefore i am um, exempt from the death penalty that is pronounced for unrepentant sinners i'm not in the flesh anymore i'm in the spirit if, in fact, Paul says, here's his proviso, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, right? It's not automatic. Not enough just to call yourself Christian. It's not enough just to, to go to church and hang out with your friends uh, that God's going to forgive you and look at you as if you're in the Spirit. No. the What has to take place is that the Spirit of God has to dwell in you. And then we, we talked about how that this is a Trinitarian passage because you've got the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, and the Holy Spirit himself. You're not in the flesh but in the Spirit, If, in fact, the Spirit of God, which is God's Spirit, but in this case, contextually, is the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Paul can seamlessly weave the ideas of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, right? Three persons. He can seamlessly weave that into his writings because he was a Trinitarian Contrary to what my Unitarian detractors want to keep reminding by sending me emails and comments to my YouTube videos that God is not a trinity, I'm sorry. He is trinity because he reveals himself as trinity. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, notice that Paul moved straight from verse 9 where he says... Um uh I'm sorry, he says anyone who does, does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him I'm sorry um the, if the spirit of God dwells in you in verse nine, he seamlessly moves from that to if Christ is in you, you know it makes a believer scratch his head. who is inside of us and i I jokingly say this all the time uh you know it's a, it's a loaded question. I mean, I actually know the answer is the point. Who's inside of us? Is it God's spirit that's inside of us? Is it God who's inside of us himself? Not a spirit, but he himself, as opposed to a spirit. Is it Jesus who's inside of us, the spirit of Jesus? Or is it the Holy Spirit, the third person? So, which person of the Trinity lives inside of us? God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit? And the answer is yes. <laughs> right? That's the point. You can tell my, by, by my uh, silly answer not really so silly, but you can tell by my answer that what I'm trying to convey is that um, uh, we have this Trinitarian experience. It's, it's, it's hard to wrap our mind around. It's mysterious. Um, it's part of the hidden things of God. It's hard for us to even articulate. But it is a truth that Paul didn't have any problem writing about, and he doesn't even elaborate on it. He just moves from one idea that this person is inside of you, and then to the next verse that this person is inside of you, without explaining how that's possible and what that looks like so but if christ is in you although the body is dead because it's in the spirit is life because of righteousness and then in verse 11 that's where we left off last week if the spirit of him who raised jesus from the dead dwells in you here again who raised jesus from the dead the default new testament position is god the father raised jesus from the dead if you if you took all the verses about resurrection and where they're talking about who did it, right? who done it, um, you'll find that most of the verses put the, um, lay, lay the, uh, the, the responsibility on the feet of God the Father. He's the one who raised Jesus from the dead. There are other passages like this uh, that talks about the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, meaning the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. But then we can we have to include that Jesus said himself. That I have the power to lay my life down and I have the authority to take it back up again. So he's almost saying that I did it. I died and I resurrected myself. That is exactly how we can interpret that. What does that mean? It means that the, the idea of resurrection is also a Trinitarian concept. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all had a point, had a role to play when it comes to the resurrection. So Paul says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, a little bit of ambiguity, a little bit of equivocation, is the spirit of him which is God? Is that who raised Jesus from the dead? Or is it the spirit, the Holy Spirit, who raised Jesus from the dead? Because the Holy Spirit is the spirit of God, the spirit that God sends forth, the third person of the Trinity that that proceeds in eternal possession from the first person of the trinity is he the one who raised jesus Christ from the dead again the answer is yes he will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you again the spirit dwells in us the spirit of him uh but wait a minute christ dwells in us uh but wait a minute um uh the spirit of god dwells in us so you know and then in galatians paul can say you know the spirit of christ dwells in us um you know Jesus is in us. So, again, that's, what that's the point of the New Testament experience is that God is this complex unity. Um, and at the same time, he, he expresses himself as Trinity, right? He's one God, but there's this Trinitarian experience going on. So, don't let the detractors uh, eat your lunch. Uh, Paul says in verse 12 of Romans, Romans Chapter eight, so then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. again he circles back around just to remind them because of your uh, forensic position because of the when I say forensic I mean like a courtroom setting, a legal um, status that's applied remember uh, uh, I, um, you've watched enough courtroom um, movies and dramas and, and TV shows to know you know how many of you are old enough to remember Perry Mason right I, I do I'm old enough right I'm showing my age um, but the the um, criminal enters the courtroom guilty because there's there hasn't been a trial yet so he enters guilty right he's been convicted I'm sorry he's been um um uh charged and so he enters the the courtroom charged and so he might even be in handcuffs and wearing prison orange who knows the point being is he doesn't know his verdict until the trial takes place so his his future is, is up in the air right um he doesn't know what's what what, what if he's going to spend his life in prison or if he's going to walk out free it's not until the judge and we're assuming that it's it's a one trial um, case right uh, you know it doesn't go to an appeal court and up to a supreme court and things like that but just follow along with my analogy without ripping apart he comes into the courtroom he doesn't know his status but eventually the judge makes a decision based on listening to the two arguments going back and forth the two different attorneys you know the defense attorney on one side and the def- the uh, the prosecuting attorney on the other side or whatever and eventually the judge brings his gavel down and makes a pronouncement, some type of verdict, right? Maybe it's a jury court or maybe something like that, and the jury helps make the decision. The point is that typically the verdict is what can stick. Um, now, again, I know in, we, could, we could make this absurd and say, but wait a minute, there could be an appeal court, and he could take it up to another court who could, who could overturn that ruling, blah, 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 blah. I don't want to go into that, all right? Don't get too complicated. I'm trying to make this simple. In God's courtroom, once the sinner is brought into the court, and Yeshua takes the case and pleads the case on behalf of the sinner, then if the sinner places his faith in Yeshua then God's pronouncement when he brings the gavel down is acquitted. You're free. You're guiltless. Why? Not because it's something you did. You did commit the crime. Let's just use me, right? Ariel, you're guilty. You committed the crime. But because you place your faith in my son, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to acquit you. I'm going to erase the crime from the books, as it were. When I look at you, I see my son. I see his blood applied to your account, and therefore the penalty has been paid, the debt has been paid, and therefore you have been set free. So because that is who you are, Ariel, you no longer have to live as if you're under the old passions of the flesh. You can, they're going to still war against you on the inside, but you don't have to live. You don't have to give in to them. You have a new advocate. You have a new power inside of you. The Holy Spirit is going to help you live a life of sanctification and do what's pleasing to me as god the father so then brothers paul says in verse 12 we're debtors not to the flesh but to live according to the spirit no he even used the word debtors right we don't owe the flesh anything we we pay the, why because jesus paid the debt right whenever my flesh rears its ugly head i, I can look at him and say guess what i don't owe you anything why because jesus paid the price he paid the price for my sin when he hung on the cross and he died and he resurrected to prove that he's more powerful than death. Death couldn't even hold him down. So, you stubborn flesh, you know, get behind me. <laughs> All right, <laughs> as if I have these kinds of conversations. But, so we're speaking of believers, verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Again, in Paul, the idea of being in someone you know if you if you're in the body if you're in the flesh if you're in Messiah it's the idea of letting yourself be controlled by that or um letting that be the dominant factor the dominating factor of your life if you live according to the flesh if you live according to your old sinful passions then you're going to put yourself in a position where eventually you're going to uh, as the bible says in other places sin when it runs its course uh I'm sorry uh, uh, lust leads to sin, and sin leads to death. There's this, there's this progressive nature of lust and sin and death. And this isn't the lifestyle that you should be leading because it's going to lead you into death. God can take you home prematurely if He wants, as a believer. For an unbeliever, ultimately, then this will lead to death, right? Spiritual death, separation from God, eternally, things like that. But Paul says you don't have to live that way. If by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live. On the one hand, Yeshua already died for us and he destroyed the power of sin in our life. He destroyed the power of death that was over us. The the um uh the pronouncement, the verdict, the judgment that the, that that uh, the death script that had that death had on us because of the sin in our life. Yeshua severed that relationship, right? It's the the, um, antecedent theology that's taught by the Passover again, right? I'll keep borrowing that because that's the paradigm for salvation. When Israel finally made it out of Egypt, when they got set free, you know the the exodus out of egypt there was a legal separation between the slave owner which was pharaoh and the slaves which was people of israel that legal relationship was severed the contract was broken by the power of god himself and therefore the people of israel represent a believer in this in this um analogy as the people of israel they are now free to serve a new master Pharaoh was the old master and God is the new master. In Paul, Paul understands that sin was your old master, death was the old master, but now in Messiah, because Messiah took your place and died for you, you now have a new master. God is your master, Jesus is your master, the Holy Spirit is your master, right? And so you don't have to live according to the flesh anymore, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. Jesus paid the ultimate price, but now it's your, t- your turn, your responsibility to live that way, right? The sanctification process is a partnership between you and the Spirit of God working together to um, uh, bring you in, into uh, conformity to the image of the Son of God. We can read about that in other passages. Paul continues. Let me see how much time I got left here. Um, I'm, I'll am i stop with, um, I think I'll stop maybe with verse 14, no, verse Uh, 15 uh, because i want to read some of this commentary verse 14 says for all who are led by the spirit of god are sons of god i like this um because paul starts using this family analogy uh sons of god we know that that son of god is a is a title that yeshua himself bears right son of god and yet we are also sons of god and um uh it is through this adoption as it were god says of israel again also you are my firstborn son so we got that family language there going on god is obviously going to take care of his own children all who are led by the spirit of god are sons of god this is another way for you to kind of check yourself right are you living according to the flesh today do you always default into the old man and the old nature are you always and continually continuously giving in to your old nature then you probably want to examine yourself check yourself um you know have a have a deep conversation with your own heart and your head and see if you really are a son of God, see if you really are saved um if your life is is characterized by um sinful habits and sinful passions and sinful desires and sinful actions and and things like that maybe you you aren't really born again maybe you're fooling yourself right you're going to church and hanging out with your friends and you talk about the Bible, but you really don't know Jesus right so you need to um, work on that. Make sure that that's a, it's a real um, part of your life. Paul continues. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery. Again, the same analogy. Paul draws from the the, the Passover analogy, right? Slavery and thing all that because that is the he already knows what I'm telling you that the um, uh, Exodus from Egypt is the. Big type and shadow that the Bible uses to portray what it means to become a believer and to be, um, become uh, born again and enter into the saved experience. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery, right? That would be Egypt all over again, to fall back into fear. What you have received instead is the spirit of adoption of sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the spirit of adoption. In Galatians uh, chapter 4, Paul puts it this way. He says, You've respir- the, 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 it's Christ in you that helped that caused you to cry out, um, Abba, Father, or Daddy God, right? Um, we'll read that verse next week. So I'll stop here in verse 15. Let me just jump into a bit of this commentary. I'm not going to be able to read all of it, but um, it's put together by a gentleman by the name of Roberto Pereira. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, so let's read just maybe a paragraph. Uh, this is a paragraph this is taken from a, um, a short essay 20 page essay about the spirit in Pauline writings and so um, This will kind of uh, bring us back into a Trinity mindset. God is three this this writer says this Christian author So I'm starting right there um, And I can't highlight the way I normally do so you just have to follow along I'm reading um. Um, along here while we may have problems to determine the uh, number of divine beings from the old testament paul uses specific trinitarian formulations to present the existence of three divine beings we have Theos, who is god the father we have kurios which is lord right um or huyas son and the son uh i'm sorry and then uh pneuma spirit the spirit so these three divine beings that show up in paul using these three words theos kurios and huyas or um theos and kurios the lord there sometimes refers to god and sometimes lord refers to jesus so you just have to catch the context then huyas is definitely son, and pneuma is definitely spirit but sometimes pneuma by context is god so you have to you have to be careful when you're reading through paul but um Again, we've got three beings referring to them as one spirit, one Lord, one God. And this is interesting. He uses this in his um, writings in the book of Ephesians and 1 Corinthians. You know, there's one Lord, one God, one spirit, one baptism, things like that. So we see three persons, but we have one God, and he mentions the three together in Romans. this writer says in Romans, ephesians, um Philippians, Colossians uh, uh, second first and second Thessalonians, and we also see them in Timothy Titus and, and Hebrews, assuming that he wrote Hebrews, which I don't think he does that he did. but in other words, the three are mentioned together in nine of the letters. That's the first thing that the author wants to let us know and then he um, let's see how much time do I got? I got a few more minutes. Let's let's keep reading some more of this. Uh, this author says, on the on the other hand, there are several passages, uh, several passages, where two of the three beings appear as a common source of blessing. We have, and this is really interesting. I was just dialoguing with a um some, a YouTube commenter about this. If you look through all of Paul's letters, not counting Hebrews, if you look through all of Paul's letters, 99% of the time he opens up with um you know blessing blessings from the Father and the Son. Right, Romans, Corinthians, uh, and then he talks about Christ and the Spirit. On the other hand, in Romans and Second Corinthians, Galatians and Philippians, and but more often than not, as he's going to say here, this author here in the Apostolic greetings and blessings, Paul always mentions God, our God, and of the and our Lord and our Lord Jesus Christ, and that's usually how he opens up his letters. You know, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Ninety-nine percent of the times, that's how it shows up. I think Corinthians, if I remember. Or Ephesians, one of the two, is one of those exceptions where he mentions all three uh, or something like that. Um, but um, God, our God, Lord Jesus Christ, however, in 2 Corinthians, this author talks about um, uh, the three are joined together, which is what I just mentioned. Sorry, my highlight doesn't want to cooperate with me. It's being funny. Whenever I tap on it, it sometimes shows all the line, then sometimes it shows only part of a word. Uh the author continues. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. There's their Corinthians um, uh, greeting at the very end. You know his uh, during his closing, um, and so we're just we're just taking a bite out of this. I think I'll stop right here. Um, we're going to learn eventually that Paul uses trinitarian language throughout his letters, and he seamlessly interweaves talking about God the Father, and then he talks about the Son, and he talks about the Holy Spirit. And he interweaves this language into his letters because he wants the believers to understand that the experience that we have in Messiah is rooted in our understanding and relationship to God through the fellowship of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who was poured out at Acts chapter 2. And I believe, and I can can substantiate this from other passages, but I'm just kind of giving you a, a peek at this right now, I believe that this is the way that Paul wants us to interact with Trinity while not just coming out and saying, God is three persons, right? We, we, the detractors are always telling me, the word Trinity doesn't show up in the Bible. Well, get news, get, guess what? You know, newsflash, the word Bible doesn't even show up in the Bible. So don't tell me the word Trinity doesn't show up in the Bible. This is an absurd argument. Um, we don't have to have words show up in order for the concept to be true, right? The word Bible doesn't even show up in the word Bible. <laughs> so... um The point I'm trying to make is that Paul instead uses a language related to our relationship to the three persons, and that's the way we end up coming to the conclusion that this is a tripart God that we serve. We'll flesh more of this out as we go on, but that'll do it now for Exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn now to the liturgy for tonight. As you can see on my screen, I've got Chabad.org pulled up. It's going to start our liturgy out with the counting of the Omer for Monday night, April 26, 2021. And um, let's scroll down to the screen. You can see on my screen right now, I've got some English over here on the left and some transliterated Hebrew just above that. And right over on the right side, you can actually see the Hebrew script if you can read that. Let's start by reading this English right there over on the left, and then we'll just follow right up with the uh, Hebrew. The English says, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments, and commanded us concerning the counting of the Omer. And right above that, or to the right side, whichever one you'd prefer to read, uh, the Hebrew says, baruchata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam. And when we drop down into the page just a bit, we can see some English right here. Let's read that, and then we'll read the Hebrew. The English says, Today is 30 days, which is four weeks and two days of the Omer. And the Hebrew to the very right of it says, Hayom Shloshim Yom Shechem Arba'a Shavuot La And that'll do it for the Omer Count liturgy. Okay, let's continue our liturgy from the Omer Count. Let's continue now and uh, look at the book of Ezekiel for our uh, passage out of the Tanakh. Remember, we've been working our way through this Ezekiel promise, starting in chapter 36, verse 22. We're going to read down through, oh, I'm going to say probably... Um, Maybe just verse 27, a very short read, 22 to 27. Then we'll actually jump over to Jeremiah. But let's start tonight. Uh, We read verse uh, 22 two weeks ago. We read 23 last week. So today let's read, um, tonight let's read 24 and 25. Let's read two verses since they're pretty short. All right. So we'll start right here on this side of the screen. Uh, The English says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land god of course speaking to national israel verse 25 i will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols i will cleanse you these are wonderful promises made to national corporate israel that haven't yet come to pass on an individual level of course they've been happening uh, throughout israel's history individuals have been uh, Uh, being forgiven of their sins, uh, being set free from their own personal sin and shame of Egypt, of sin and shame, that's typified by Egypt, and they've been brought into a right relationship with God through His Son, Messiah, Yeshua. They've been cleansed from all their uncleannesses. But on a corporate level, this is still a future passage. Let's look at um, the Hebrew over here on the right side of the page. Um the Hebrew says balakhti etchem min hagoyim ve kibadsti etchem kol ha'aretzot ve heveti heveti etchem el admat chem and verse 25 says ve Zarachti alechem ma'im tchorim uthartem mikol tu uh tu mutehim u mchol gulu lechem etchem and that'll do it for our liturgy from the Tanakh. Let's jump now over to the book of Romans and read just one short verse tonight. We're working our way through Romans chapter 14, which is our Romans 14 study. And in our liturgy, we're reading down through the, the verses uh, just systematically. We started in verse 1, and we went through verse uh, 2 and 3. Uh, and then last week, I think we read 4 and 5. So we read one, two, three the first week, second, uh, last week we read uh, four and five, and now let's read just verse six by itself, since it's such a long verse. Paul says, in English, the one who observes a day observes it in honor of the Lord, the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. And, of course, the English, or the uh, Hebrew, <laughs> let's try that one more time, the Greek over on the right side of the page says, "ha franon And then in brackets, we have a variant uh, that shows up across the manuscript families uh, that sh- it makes it a longer reading. The variant in brackets says, tain." Hey meran kurio u end of bracket and then we continue with the shorter reading which says ha estion kurio estia euchariste gar to theo kai ha me estion kurio uk estia kai euchariste to theo and that'll do it for our liturgy for tonight Let's watch the short little video, and then right after the video's over, we'll turn to closing and prayer, and that'll uh, round out the end of our study tonight, okay? You ready for the little video? You ready? Here we go. Short Questions, Short Answers by Tor Teacher Ariel and E-Bible. Copyright Tate Say Tor Ministries 2015. All rights reserved. Here's our question for tonight. What did God mean when he said, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy? Yeah, we're going to be talking about the Sabbath night. FYI, the original eBible.com question asked about honoring the Sabbath and keeping it holy. And after posting my answer, the question was reworded using the terms remember and keep it holy. And My original answer thus is going to reflect part of the originally worded question, in case you guys wonder. All still photography used in this video is courtesy of unsplash.com using the tanakh the old testament i couldn't find a verse that simply commands us to honor the sabbath day and keep it holy with the original hebrew word kavod for honor and the original hebrew word kadosh for holy although isaiah 58 13 through 14 probably comes the closest since it employs both of these words across two verses so that was the original question and so that's how i originally worded my answer and it reads: If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy, the Hebrews kadosh, day of the Lord, honorable; if you honor the Hebrews Kavad, it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take the light in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. However, there are quite a few other verses commanding us to single out the Sabbath in special ways. I'm going to list a few more familiar ones along with the original Hebrew root verb used to describe the action listed in the Torah. So again, this is going to be kind of a little bit of a word study. Our first one is the word remember, which is the Hebrew Zachar. We're told to remember the Sabbath in Exodus 20, verse 8. We're also told to keep the Sabbath in Exodus 31, 14, and 16, and the Hebrew word for keep is shamar. And then we're told to observe the Sabbath in Deuteronomy 5.12, the Hebrew word also being Shemar. But notice notice you can see from above that keep and observe share the same root Hebrew word Shemar yet are translated with two differing English words. The original Hebrew word Shemar actually implies guarding at times. Within close proximity of remembering and keeping slash observing the Sabbath, we also find verses such as Exodus 20 verse 8 commanding us to likewise keep it holy, the Hebrew is Kadash and Exodus 31.16 commanding to celebrate it, the Hebrew verb is asa. That's per the NIV and the NASB. So you got to gouge your Strong's concordance sometimes and try and figure out. What are some of the original Hebrew words behind the translation, and how does that impact me? What is more, we find that God himself blessed the Hebrew word as Barach, the seventh day, and he made it holy, Genesis 2-2, a day which we know to be the Sabbath day. God also declared the seventh day Sabbath to be a sign, the Hebrew word is Ot, between Israel and himself to expressly declare to the world that it is God who sanctifies Israel. Read Exodus 31:13 and Ezekiel 20, 12, and verse 20. Go back and read these verses. The reasons for Israel marking out the Sabbath are numerous, but perhaps the two most well known are: number one, to remember that God is the Creator, Exodus 20, 11, and two, to remember that Israel was rescued from Egypt, Deuteronomy 5, verse 15. So, what are our conclusions to tonight's extremely short word study? When God commanded Israel to mark out the Sabbath, it often envisioned one or many of the following terms, remember, keep, observe, bless, sanctify, celebrate, sign, as well as others I may have missed in this brief word study. What does it mean to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy? At the very least, we can conclude that it means to take God at His word and make His Seventh-day Sabbath a special day in our lives and in our communities. Moreover, as a witness to our unsaved brothers in national Israel, since we of Remnant Israel affirm that Yeshua Jesus is the embodiment of Sabbath peace and Sabbath rest, read Matthew 12, 8, Mark two twenty eight, Luke 6, 5, Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Hebrews 4, 3, 9, and 11, the Sabbath rest concept was obviously given to Israel to also teach her about this vital spiritual reality. Catch that people. If you're not noticing Yeshua in the Sabbath, you're missing it. And since national Israel has yet to receive her Messiah, then we know that she is yet to experience genuine and lasting Sabbath peace. So, why not take some time today and pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Psalm 122, verse 6 says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Check out my podcasts, which are available on iTunes. You can search for me in the store under the search term, Ariel Hanavi. But if you prefer to watch your theology, check out my YouTube channel, subscribe to my YouTube channel, and click the bell for notifications. New content is added weekly or even daily. And that'll do it for the short little video. Let's close in a word of prayer. Abba, bless your name. And we are so grateful to be able to uh, meet together with like-minded believers uh, around the world. And uh, week after week, we can pour into the Word and just study and build one another up in prayer um, and in fellowship. Thank you for these opportunities. I pray that you'll continue to heal us and bless us and strengthen us during these very difficult days that we live in. And we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory of Yeshua, Oh, Maine.